Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. so glad that you're worshiping with us today. Our scripture reading today comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the third chapter, beginning with verse number 13. Listen once again to the Word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to worship in a Methodist church that was growing by leaps and bounds. I had lunch with a pastor. I attended several of the worship services that Sunday morning, spoke with them after the service. The service was beautiful. Hundreds of people gathered in a large auditorium. The music was uplifting and the preaching was excellent. Uh, all in all, it was a wonderful weekend. I enjoyed getting to know him and I certainly delighted in his congregation. But when I left, something, something was just bothering me. Something in that worship service, as uplifting as it was, as powerful as it was, something left me empty. It was what we might call a contemporary worship service with a band and lots of contemporary music, and, and I enjoyed that, but it was so focused on being uplifting there was no opportunity in the service to acknowledge the brokenness of our world. There, there was, for example, no confession of sin. I worried momentarily, have I become a dour and sour Calvinist? Um, I don't think so. But I was surprised that I longed in that worship service for some kind of opportunity to acknowledge what is wrong in the world. Whenever I teach confirmation classes, I spend some time with those students talking about worship. I explain that God calls us together as the community. We come together, and then in the presence of God's majesty, we are filled with awe and we break forth into praise. And so that is why at the beginning of our worship services, we have hymns and music and prayers that 
lift up the majesty and glory of God. It is a celebration. But then I point out to the confirmation class, standing in the presence of God, we become aware of how far we have fallen short of God's expectations to. And so we join together in prayer and we lift up our sins. I miss that and that worship service. But, but, but why did I miss that? Many years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a pastor from East Germany talk about the church. This was before reunification. This took place in the late 1980s. Pastor Radoloff was very articulate. His English was good. This was rural North Carolina, and we met in a, a fish camp. Have any of you ever heard of a fish camp? Have any of you ever heard of a fish camp? In North Carolina, thank you, Desiree. Uh, in, in North Carolina, parts of South Carolina, a fish camp is simply a seafood restaurant in which practically everything is always fried. And so I'm wondering how they translated fish camp to this German pastor. And it was also interesting, interesting when someone was trying to translate catfish to this German pastor. I'm not sure what he ever, ever ordered that day. As he was speaking, he talked to us about his confirmation class and he pointed out that every year he takes his confirmation class to one of the concentration camps. He said it is very, very important that we never forget. That we never forget what we did. It was that kind of acknowledgement that I was missing in that other worship service. When we confess our sins on Sunday morning, just as we did a moment ago, we are acknowledging our complicity with the brokenness of the world. We are acknowledging our greed, our tendency to gossip or malign, our distortion of the truth, our words and deeds that perpetuate evil. And yet that really doesn't quite fully explain what I was missing in that worship service. Sometimes our confession of sins borders too closely on self-flagellation. Uh, we're bad, we're bad, we're bad, we're bad. But that's not what the confession of sin is all about. I, I have known some pastors and churches who say, uh, we will not have a confession of sin in our worship service because people already feel bad enough about who they are. But that misses the point as well. Why do we confess our sin and our sins in worship? Our scripture reading this morning might help us. Jesus approaches John the baptizer. He's in the Jordan River and he's baptizing people left and right. And Jesus goes to John to be baptized. Oh, by the way, why is Jesus baptized if he has no sin? If baptism is for the forgiveness of sin and Jesus has no sin, why does Jesus go to John for baptism? Uh, John evidently struggled with this a little bit. Uh, uh, Jesus, you come to me for baptism? Uh, really? Why? And Jesus says these mysterious words. Uh, it is proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness? What? 
Well, the word righteousness is very, very close to its brother, its cognate word in Hebrew scripture, uh, justice. And justice is a powerfully social, relational, and structural word. Righteousness and justice and scripture describe God's work in the world to make right what is wrong, to straighten out what is twisted, to restore what has been lost, to fulfill all righteousness is God's commitment to make us whole and to make all of creation whole. Often I find that many of us have a notion of sin that is simply far too small. Well, sin is what I do, that's wrong. And we focus on behavior, I shouldn't have said this, I shouldn't have done that. But sin is much more substantial, much more powerful. Sin describes the not rightness of the world. I would also claim that the more we know Jesus, the more we know sin. That is, the more we know God's will for our lives, our, his God's will for creation in Jesus Christ, the more we are aware of how much we're not like that. How much our actions, our attitudes, our way of living, our organizations, how we fall short of God's intention for us. Uh, in other words, when we consider that God wants a world without insider and outsider, when we remember that Jesus says that the first will be last and the last will be first, subtext, so that everyone can be in the middle, when we recall that violence and disease are not God's will for us, when we begin to see how resistance and resentment to love and respect and acceptance are woven into our political, economic, and social fabric, then we begin to become aware of the power of sin. Sin is not just what you do or what I do. Sin describes the not rightness of the world. In one congregation I served, I got to know a woman by the name of Ellen. We'll call her Ellen. She was in her early 80s at the time. Ellen was a widow. She lived by herself. She had a couple of small dogs and some animals in the backyard. This was rural North Carolina. She was a member of my congregation, and every Sunday morning she was in church. She could no longer drive, and members of the congregation went to her house and drove her to the worship service. We knew that she was becoming forgetful, but we didn't realize how much. One afternoon I was sitting with Ellen in her living room on her couch. We were chatting, and her little dog walked in, hopped up on the couch right beside me, and urinated, and Ellen did not see it. Ellen did not acknowledge it. It was right there in front of her, but she, it was, as, it was as if her dog and what the dog had done did not exist. And it was at that point that we began to realize, oh my gosh, Ellen is not simply forgetful. Ellen was descending into the depths of dementia. And we discovered soon that she really should not be living by herself. 
She had no tr children. Her husband had been dead for years. She did have a niece that was taking care of her. I got on the phone with her, and she and I began comparing notes and talking. And then we began talking with Ellen. Ellen, it's really not safe for you to live by yourself anymore. What, what, what can we do to help you? No, I'm not leaving my house. I'm staying in my house. Okay, well, what else might we do? And over a series of months, many months, many conversations, we invited and then convinced Ellen to go to an assisted living facility for her own benefit. We even had the date set, down, set out. It was on Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. I was going to go with them, with Ellen and with her niece, and we were going to drive her there, and the congregation knew what was going on, and they were going to be supportive. And that evening, around 5 o'clock before, the night before, her brother from Oregon called me enraged that we were going to put her in a home. He flew into town the next morning. The niece and I met with him, and he raked us over the coals, saying that we did not know what we were talking about. He had recorded conversations with his sister, played them for a psychiatrist, and she knew, he knew, he knew that his sister had no mental or memory issues whatsoever. So much for our plan to provide care for Ellen in an assisted living program. He just blew it up, and it never happened. Three months later, he died. His son came into town to take Ellen to the funeral and we never saw her again. We're not sure what happened. We do know that the 300 acres that she owned were soon sold and that someone got a lot of money. I found this situation so frustrating, so aggravating, so painful. This church loved her, walked beside her, wanted to provide for her. I and the niece had worked with Ellen and a social worker and the assisted living facility to provide care for her, and her brother blows it up because he thought he knew better when he was not even seeing her regularly? Really? Who's to blame? At whom might we point fingers in this situation? Um, I was very angry at the brother for a while. Maybe we could blame him. Maybe we could blame a social system that had let her slip through the cracks. Maybe we can blame his family that ended up with a lot of money. Maybe we can blame Ellen for not making provisions for her declining years. Maybe we can blame her late husband, who had also not made any provisions working with her to provide for them in their years of decline. There was really no one to blame. It was an awful, broken, sick situation. Very, very sticky. And that often is the way it is with sin in the world. 
It's a situation that just wasn't right. It was broken. And any hope of restoration lay beyond what we could do. This is the power of sin, my friends. It's sneaky. It's subversive. It hides in the shadows. And yet, it breaks human people, human relationships. It breaks people. It breaks bonds. It injures health. That is the power of sin. We can't quite put our finger on it, but, it, but we know it's there. But because, you see, the more we know Jesus, the more we know God's intent for us in Jesus Christ, the more aware we are that something is not right in the world. When we behold situations like this, or many, many others, there's a part of us that wants to cry out, that wants to lift up our pain and outrage to God that says, No! This is not right! And that is part of what we are about in our confession of sin every week. And that is what I was missing and that worship service at that wonderful Methodist church. In the prayer of confession, we not only acknowledge our complicity with the brokenness of the world, we lift up to God our frustration and outrage about the brokenness of the world. Our prayer of confession is a lament in which we give voice to our sorrow. Grounded in hope that God has not forgotten us and sustained by the promise that God is redeeming the world even now. The confession of sin is our weekly opportunity to lift up our exasperation to God. What? I, I'm wondering, maybe if you could, could you write it in the chat? Um, what kind of exasperation do you want to lift up to God today? Are you exasperated by the pandemic? Are you exasperated by the political polarization? Are you exasperated by what? The confession of sin gives us this opportunity to say, oh God, really? This is what the confession of sin does. In the confession of sin, we pray, Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. Would, would you say that with me? Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. I hope, I, I hope you at home will join with me in saying that. Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. So when people go hungry in a world in which there is more than enough food to go around, we join together in saying, Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. When a pandemic is politicized in an attempt to garner votes and accumulate power and influence, we pray, Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. When our knee-jerk reaction to those with whom we disagree is suspicion and denigration, we pray, Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. When lies are accepted as truth, when violence 
is listed up as a legitimate option for social change? When women and children around the world are sold in twisted schemes of human trafficking, we pray, Lord, in this plight, please make it right. Why is Jesus baptized? Why does Jesus get in that river? Matthew says, to fulfill all righteousness, which means that Jesus chooses not to remain safe on the shore of our lives. Jesus gets in that river because that's where we are. Lord, this is our plight. Please make it right. Amen.